All right, gentlemen. What is your favorite moment in American politics? This is going to kind of sound a little counterintuitive, but uh, it, it was Nixon resigning because it kind of showed that the system was working, that he got caught and there was no partisan bullshit going on and he was going to go down and the people were pissed and they wanted something done. And he may have gotten off, got out of it at the end, but he still had to completely embarrass himself and put himself in the history books as the only president that ever had to willingly step down because of a criminal investigation. And um, yeah, there's no reason why I wish that was a thing that could happen these days. But um, it, it it's just... You know, this I'm sure this Mike's gonna have his own answer that's more actually like optimistic. Uh, but I think for me that was just um uh, for me looking back, that's like a moment of okay, we may not have wanted to get to that place like that, but something did come of it, and they didn't just say, "Well, deal with it. That's just what we do," or whatever the hell. I mean, for me, <sighs> there's legislative things that I love. Uh, there's moments, especially in, in American history that I love, but when it comes to politics, um, there's a more recent moment that I think of, not so recent, but within my lifetime that I think of, um, that is such a, a great reminder of what this is all about that I keep it. I, I had, uh, during all of 2016, I, I still have somewhere the video file saved on my laptop. The year's 1992. Uh, George H.W. Bush is running for re-election, and he's running against uh, this this you know young guy from youngish guy from Arkansas, and a third party candidate Ross Perot. So he's running against Bill Clinton and Ross Perot. They have a town hall. Now it's very rare, as we know, it's not that often that an incumbent uh, loses, and especially there's a lot of concern that a prominent third-party candidate like Perot could take away votes from any opposition, so on and so forth. Uh, And the moment that turned that entire election around, I think about all the time. It's a town hall, and a woman stands up and directs her question first to George H.W. Bush and says, you know, uh, how has the national debt personally affected each of your lives? Uh, And if it hasn't, you know, how do you want to cure the economic problems? And... George H.W. Bush starts, you know, he, he's, he's looking around the room. He's looking at his watch at one point, and he just kind of keeps going, I don't understand what you mean. What are you, what are you talking about? How, are, are you saying that because I'm rich, I don't, I don't feel debt? Uh, you know, I, are you saying because I'm the president, I don't? He just is very combative. And the question comes to Clinton, and Clinton gets up off his stool, walks, and makes direct eye contact with her. And the first thing he says is, tell me how it's affected you again. You know people who've lost your jobs. That You know people who have been through that. And he never takes his eyes off of the person he's speaking to. That even though it's a town hall, and even though all the conventional wisdom is speak big, look powerful, look big and strong and all that, and that it's so easy to get caught up in the machinations of D.C. and, and the, the, uh, the intricacies of it and the policy of it, that moment to me just reminds you that what it's really about is, is connecting with people and understanding that every person, every person that goes into that 
booth to cast a vote on election day has their own problems and their own crises that mean a hell of a lot more than whatever intellectual things you can debate on Twitter or on your campus or what have you. So I always think of that moment. It's my favorite moment because it is just this reminder that it's really about trying to help as many of the one people as you can. Not just a majority or an idea, but however many people you can reach and help just a little bit by understanding just a little bit. That, to me, is what democracy is about. So I love that moment. Don't vote for cloture on our filibuster just yet, because we're talking 1939's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington here on You're Missing Out with special guest Amanda Rush. Our guest today is currently working with nonprofits in the D.C. metro area, is a former Democratic campaign staffer, and uh, by her own title, a parks and recreation expert and honorary Pawnee, Indiana resident, Amanda Rush joins us today. Hello. So happy to be here. We're so glad you're here. Uh, when I, you know, th- when we kind of get folks on for this show, it's usually a mix of us just sending a list out to people and saying, hey, whatever you want, and us kind of having people that we know we want on for a specific episode. And when I knew we were doing this, I knew we were doing uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, you were the person I reached out to. I knew uh, I wanted to have you on for this because I thought it would make such a, a great conversation. So I'm so glad you agreed to come on. Of course. You said that you wanted to talk about pop culture, politics, and parks and rec, and those are my three Ps. <laughs> well, that's actually how we know each other. It is. You and I, you and I about four years ago, worked on, we won't get into specifics, we'll just say we worked on a, a big uh, presidential campaign and she didn't win, and you can guess the rest. Anyway, <laughs> uh, totally vague there. Um, Mike but that's stand back or stand down. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh. I, this, we're recording this to give folks an idea. This episode is probably, uh, this is, a, you know, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a politically charged uh, film. We are p- recording this uh, prior to the election. We're recording this at the start of October. By the time this is released, it will be uh, post-election. So we're living in a very different world than whatever is on the other side of this rainbow. Uh, so Tom now just mentioned uh, something from the first presidential debate. Who knows what new things we'll have learned by the time this episode comes out? Anybody have any guesses? Trump's going to gonna just... attack Joe Biden on stage and just throw bags of live lobsters at him. <laughs> I Listen, I'm not going to tune in for the remaining presidential debates. I am going to watch the VP debate uh, next week because I've never seen a grown man eaten alive on a live broadcast. And I think it's going to be fun to watch Kamala do it. Um, but I have no idea what's going to happen in November and... Uh, Listen, the one thing that I've learned living in D.C. and working in D.C. is that I don't, I don't make assumptions. <laughs> that, that VP debate's going to be great for everybody who didn't get to see the last Siegfried and Roy show. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Uh, <laughs> so we met, uh, Amanda, you and I met working on, on a campaign, and uh, I think, what did you, you say? We basically, we, we met in a parking lot because it was after a, an organizing meeting. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the two of us walked out, you know. We showed up as uh, volunteers that day um, mm-hmm. and we both completely got sucked into uh, 
the machine that is a New York state primary. Uh, that would take a whole other episode to talk about. Um, but yeah, and then shortly after that, I uh, was offered a job with the campaign um, in Virginia. So I, I quit a nine to five job with 401k and, and moved moved down to Virginia to live with a stranger and, and work 100 hours for, uh, you know, we're not getting into specifics, but the candidate who she lost. You know, and and it's it's um, it's funny. You know, I, I've been watching a lot of those uh, those if I if I may, and watching a lot of those wild wild country and the vow kind of like uh, you know cult shows. And you do kind of wonder once in a while when it comes to working on campaigns as we've done, like how close is this really? Oh yeah, you know, we're following a we're we're following a charismatic leader we never get to meet. Everyone's always smiling and high energy, <laughs> and we just travel hundreds of miles to go walk around to people and it, spread the good news <laughs> it, it took you a documentary in the last two months to figure that out you didn't figure that out four years ago when the the giant fucking cheeto asshole got elected and it took you until just now to figure out there's a cult-like sensibility to politics <laughs> um yeah no i definitely think that there's something uh cult-like even just in the organizational structure of uh of working in politics but i don't i i'm saying that and i don't mean it in like the from my experience it's not a it's not a negative thing it's uh it but there was there was a mentality in 2016 of 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 what we were going to do and the mindset that we were going to be in and i've i've talked to campaign friends and been like was this what you were thinking too when you were knocking on doors in 2016 in rural virginia and they're like yeah yeah, and they were like, no one told us that. We just we just assumed that we were, we had to do what we had to do to get the job done. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't. Uh, <laughs> though we did, we we won in Virginia, guys. We won in Virginia. So, um, but but you know, part of the reason you and I became friends from that is that we were kind of one of the few people in that apparatus at the time in New York that that were. Uh, I feel like a lot of people are are just so plugged into politics and and not much else that like if you talk to them and go. So what are you uh, what are you doing when you finish your shift today? And they'll just be like, well, I'm going home to look up municipal broadband systems that we can try and import. To-. And like, I, I remember talking to you one day and you turn around and just said, like, I don't know, I'm excited for the new X-Men movie. And I was like, cool, I got this. We're in. We, we can do this. We can stuff packets, but also talk about the new season of, of Parks and Rec or what have you. Like, we can do both. It's possible. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's important. I think uh, one of the things that I, I had to reteach myself working in the D.C. area was about work-life balance. And I, I didn't always have that, but uh, it's important and it's how you form the relationships that last. And uh, just to let you know, I talked to uh, our two campaign organizers from that primary to let them know that you and I were going to be talking about this movie. Um, and they're super excited that we're still in touch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, we won't say the names or anything, but yeah, that's that's great. I still, I still remember them. Still, uh, wonderful folks. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad we're doing this, uh, especially because the thing with this film and the reason I wanted you on was it's not just we have a couple things, especially coming up in future seasons, that are just like political. There's the next season we get to do the the Kennedy primary campaign documentary. Ooh. There's all kinds of things like that. But the beauty of this film is that it isn't just about politics it also kind of in a way launches this whole subgenre of american media about politics and kind of a i don't want to call it a fantasy but an optimistic vision of of uh government that 
extends to things like the West Wing and Parks and Recreation and, you know, those kind of, you know, Madam Secretary, whatever, like this whole subgenre of political media, uh, which is also something you're, you're passionate about. So I wanted to, you know, I knew you'd be able to see both sides of this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I 100% agree. In fact, I would say that it's more, it, it did more to shape that than I think it actually did a, a commentary on, on politics itself. I think if you want films that are strictly, you know, political in nature, this isn't it. I think this is more about the, the optimism for the common man in a system that a lot of people can lose faith in, uh, which is at the heart what Parks and Rec and The West Wing and a bunch of other shows that I have on a constant loop in my apartment are about. And, you know, like all of Aaron Sorkin's I mean, I know you must watch uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip every day, too, right? Just a huge, <laughs> you're big on sports night. Um, <laughs> all right. So before we get into the film, uh, let's talk about why the National Film Registry uh, picked this film. This is what they said about it. Engaging Slice of Americana by director Frank Capra stars Jimmy Stewart as a junior senator disheartened by the corruption he finds in Washington. Bolstered by support from Gene Arthur and Thomas Mitchell, Stewart's Mr. Smith fights back on behalf of his home state constituents. And, and that, is, uh, that is all they said. Amanda, yeah, this is your first time on the show, uh, but we've encountered this a lot. Sometimes the National Film Registry gives you paragraphs, and sometimes they give you two sentences that are just a plot synopsis. This is, uh, <laughs> we run into this sometimes. Um, but I, I'm, I'm so excited to do this. This is uh, you know, one of the classics you know, from the inaugural class. Uh, weirdly, also our second uh, Thomas Mitchell film uh, this season, which is uh, quite quite the weird uh, <laughs> turn of that. And the, our second Thomas Mitchell film from 1939, because uh, we recently did, uh, our listeners have heard this a couple weeks ago, we recently did Gone with the Wind, which was released the same year and the same Oscar year as Mr. Smith Goes to Washington during that weird uh, murderer's row uh, year of nominees. So this was a, a massive film that came out in a year of massive films, but has endured. It is still a, a cultural touchstone. Was this your first time seeing this, Amanda? It was. It was. Um, I had not gotten the chance to see it before and was excited to watch it. I own it. I've watched it twice since the first time I've watched it now. Have you watched the sequel? <laughs> <laughs> what is the one where Mel Gibson goes to... The Congress. Uh, you know, I haven't yet, but maybe we'll just add it to the to the list. That's that is a uh, that is a Simpsons episode about Homer pitching Mel Gibson a remake of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington that is uh, chock full of murder, if I remember. Ah. Right? Yeah, Mel just shoots yeah. up uh, the House of Congress because they won't listen to his <laughs> filibuster or some such nonsense. Because at the time, Mel Gibson was only known for shooting people in movies and not being a maniac. <laughs> the past is fun. Um, have you had you seen Amanda any other Frank Capra films? It's a Wonderful Life or or anything. It's a Wonderful uh, Life is a is a Christmas tradition. Uh, yes, at my family's house every year, um, and I do love it a lot. Um, but yeah, I you know I've watched some films. Uh, you know, a, a real memory is is spending time with my grandparents watching some old movies. Um, but this was really, I think, my first time actively seeking this one out and, and digging into it. Well, I'm, I'm so glad. And Tom, uh, was this your first time seeing Mr. Smith or? No, I'd seen this, uh, before we, um, 
some class of college. We, we saw it in it. film school. Yeah, right? it yeah. was our class. I can't remember which class it was. We saw it. And, uh, you know, I liked it then. Um, I've, I like it a lot more now, even though watching it in the year of our Lord 2020, you know, our Lord uh, Cthulhu. Um, <laughs> it's very infuriating to watch this movie in 2020, where the political landscape is just dog's diarrhea dumping onto a gas fire. Oh um, but this was also, I just realized just ta- like now, like, oh yeah, I've only seen two Frank Capra movies. I've only seen this and it's a, it's a wonderful life. And um, you haven't seen it happen one night, Tom. I haven't seen any of, I just realized like, oh wow, I've wow. never seen any. I have a few in my stack of like, oh, I, you know, Capra, I need to learn more about Capra. I, I got that after watching five came back, but I just realized like, yeah, this it's, this and it's a wonderful life and i mean he's batting two for two in my opinion but uh yeah so movie this movie's uh something else <laughs> lots lots to chew on with this movie it's such an interesting if we can just touch on capper for a second uh it's interesting in fact um uh i'm not the first to notice i mean bruce edder uh noted this as well that uh, mr smith is a real turning point in the career of capper i mean this comes out in 1939 yes so it's before he makes prelude to war or any of the the films that are touched on in the the great netflix series five came back um you know prior to that all of his movies had been very lofty fun comedies you have american madness lady for a day uh it happened one night Mr. Deeds goes to town, and then his best picture winner, You Can't Take It With You, are all, which he had done with uh, James Stewart. That's where their relationship started. Uh, they were all fun, take your mind off things, like just, hey, let's all have a good time comedies. And Mr. Smith is where it starts to take a turn. Uh, his quote here, if I can read it, is beginning with American Madness, uh, these films had trumpeted their belief in the decency of the common man. In Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, however, the decent common man is surrounded by a venal, petty, and thuggish group of crooks. Everyone in the film, except for Jefferson Smith and his tiny cadre of believers, is either in the pay of the political machine run by Edward Arnold's James Taylor or complicit in Taylor's corruption through their silence, and they all sit by as innocent people, including children, are brutalized and intimidated, rights are violated, and the government is brought to a halt. So there is a real sense of, as opposed to you know, hey, everything's great, this real sense of things are not good, the world is not great, but we can try and be better. And that's exemplified again in uh, in It's a Wonderful Life, and some of his later work really takes on uh, Meet John Doe, Arsenal Lace. You know why he made this one, right? Oh, uh, what do you mean? Uh, he This was offered to him, but he passed on it, but then he came back around to it um, because he was looking for a movie to kind of work through uh, after he lost a, a child. Oh, I hadn't realized that. Wow, so uh, this, th- there is uh, probably a reason why it's got this, it's how it starts so like almost like propaganda for how great America is and then just descends into absolute chaos and like, oh no, maybe things kind of can suck, but we can make it work because, and also, you know, the thing that really threw me at the end was, oh shit, kids are getting like massacred in his hometown. <laughs> Because he was uh, working through some shit. Yeah. yeah. And it's such an interesting vantage point because, of course, Frank Capra, despite being, uh, you know, so many people talk about Capra rightfully as one of the quintessential American filmmakers, part of the, you know, creating that image, you know, one of Steven Spielberg's favorite directors for that real sense of Americana. But Frank Capra was an immigrant. Frank Capra was born in Italy, uh, in Sicily, in fact. 
one of the things that watching this movie, it really, it feels like this is a movie only an immigrant could have made because it has that sort of clear-eyed sense of like, okay, things aren't great and America has its problems, but also I like knowing where I've come from, this place is like still kind of great. Uh, Amanda, if you're hearing grumbling, we should introduce you to our third co-host. That's Tom's dog, Blondie, in the background. So uh-huh. yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give her some what for. Tom's Tom's gonna give her some some what for, as though she's a child trying to get Jefferson Smith's message out. But so, Amanda, let me let me ask. Start with that. I mean, this is obviously a film because I know you have a lot you want to dig into, both from the cinematic side and the procedural side. But you were talking to me before we started about. One thing that we kind of forget, everybody remembers the filibuster, everybody remembers, uh, you know, Smith sitting at the Lincoln Memorial, but we kind of forget, I think, a lot how Smith got his position. Uh, it's not that Smith was elected. He is selected by, uh, by a governor, but because of a, uh, a, essentially a political boss. Yes. Uh, he was, he selected uh, the, the sitting incumbent senator uh, passes away. And so there is a special appointment made by the governor. Um, but in this case, the governor is basically a puppet whose strings are being pulled by this James Taylor, Jim Taylor uh, character who's uh, running this political machine of corruption. Um, but, you know, we, we currently have senators who are who were placed in by by special appointment um, in Arizona and in Georgia. That's Martha McSally and Kelly Loeffler. Um, both of whom are are actually running in an election this year. Uh, I am currently sitting here wearing my Mark Kelly for Senate uh, in Arizona T-shirt, uh, so you can imagine how I feel about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting rule when that happens. I mean, Martha McSally was uh, appointed after losing an election to Kristen Cinema, uh, who's the and then was appointed uh, after the death of uh, of John of Senator John McCain. Uh, and because of the way that the appointment ran, she is actually considered the senior senator uh, from Arizona, which is wild. Um, and the one thing that Megan McCain and I will ever agree on is that she did not earn her spot in the Senate. Um, so while I think it's the, in the movie itself, I mean, you've got this character and he's, there's there's a lot that's admirable about him, but in in reality, I think I have a lot of questions about the way that we use special Senate appointments, and they are they are a political tool, uh, you know, especially as they're being used right now. Um, in terms of Martha McSally's appointment, and I mean anything that Brian Kemp does in Georgia, I'm gonna have a problem with. Well, I think it's one of those things uh, with this, and and kind of what Mr. Smith gets to the heart of, which is it kind of exposes a lot of the things that are used as political tools in our government by having a character go against the grain and subvert them. I mean, you know, it, it's, they make it clear that, that Jim Taylor, who, like I said, is, a, is kind of this character that we don't really have anymore, at least in our media, which is the idea of a political boss and a political machine that was so prominent in, you know, the early part of the 1900s. And now... I still exists, but we, we don't talk about it. Uh, we thought we got rid of them, and then we didn't. And it's used, you know, the idea is they're going to put Jefferson Smith in as a patsy, and then he's just a doe-eyed idiot who loves Claude Rains' character, uh, Payne, and will do whatever he says. And then it backfires on them. And, you know, that's, that's a... 
it's admittedly a classic trope both of media and of history i mean i think the most famous example is uh is probably thomas beckett who uh you know king henry appointed thinking Mm -hmm. he's my drinking buddy he'll have my back and then uh ends up actually doing his job and getting murdered for it and uh I mean, at least this film does not end in uh, Jefferson Smith getting murdered. Um, maybe he dies. We really don't know. It kind of leaves that <laughs> weirdly vague. That's a surprise thing about this ending. I think the beginning, pretty sweaty. It's a lot of uh, very elaborate contrivances to get us to Mr. Smith coming to Washington. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, I guess, whatever, it's fine. We need to get him there. But it's it's like, it's just so much. And then having the governor being harassed by his children that are all just like intellectually running circles around him. And then <laughs> just like, okay, this guy dies and we need somebody. But then his children, blah, blah, blah. And then this thing and now this thing. And then boom. And then we elect Jefferson Smith. And then he's going to propose this nonsense boys rangers thing that just so happens to coincide with this graft they're trying to do where it's just <laughs> a lot of it might have been some more graceful way to get us here but i think after i think probably when jimmy stewart starts beating up reporters is when the movie kind of hits its groove and it's a little more straightforward and easier to just grasp onto because then it stops it's no longer so convenient of everything that's happening yeah i agree i think i think before that point there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff happening to sort of set up you know what the expectation for our suspension of disbelief is within this movie um the idea that they're appointing someone who has no political kind of background um you know establishing you know Gene Ar- Arthur's character of Saunders being sort of this uh, dis- disillusioned now with all of her work in DC. I think a lot of, and, you know, establishing the press corps relationship with, with elected officials in, in, in the span of this movie. I think that it, it gets into the meat of it after that point of him honestly just running around and punching the press corps, which is an incredible, incredible scene. <laughs> It is wild how many things that in this movie are the things that our hero is doing and feel good are things that in our present 2020 society are things that we think are terrible, which is like a a politician being antagonistic to the press, utilizing the filibuster, uh, all of these things. <laughs> it's it truly is almost like trying to watch. Um, now I'm I'm gonna guess you haven't seen this Amanda, but maybe you have. Have you ever seen Rambo three? No. I haven't. Okay. Amanda, what do you think the plot of Rambo 3 is? Just guessing. If you had to guess what Rambo does in the third Rambo movie. Kills a lot of people? Yes, but Tom, why don't you explain who Rambo's help, who are Rambo's pals in Rambo 3? Well, obviously Rambo 3 is set in the 80s, which is the height of the Cold War, so he's got to go fight the commies, the Russians. Where are the Russians at this point in the 80s when Rambo 3 comes out? That's right. They're in Afghanistan, so Rambo teams up with the Mujahideen and helps establish Al-Qaeda on accident by (laughs) forcing the Russians out. And the movie ended, which has since been uh, deleted on home video and is now one of my favorite joke formats on Twitter, ends with a a title card that says, Dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters. So, watching this... It's not often that I'm speechless, Tom, (laughs) but I'm speechless now. 
Yeah, it's 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 something. It's really <laughs> it is it is wild watching that movie now. Honestly, it's made the movie better because in the eighties, kind of boring. But now you're like, <laughs> oh Rambo, because now you're watching like, oh wait, Rambo's helping the Al Qaeda. So there's kind of this weird moral ambiguity in the movie that wasn't there in '88. I think this movie was came out in. <laughs> but it's this, it's the same kind of thing where like with this right now we are having a conversation where where you know those of us on uh, you know Democrats those people on the left are having a conversation about like we kind of have to eliminate the filibuster. It's this dated, dangerous thing that can be weaponized by one lone maniac to derail progress. <laughs> and then you sit down and watch this beautiful movie. That is basically Jimmy Stewart going, well, the only thing that can save the day is one lone man filibustering on the floor. And it's like, okay, yeah, it's well, it's a weird it, it, mixed bag, you know? It is It is that thing of every Republican not understanding that they're the bad guys in the art that they <laughs> assume they presumably love. Yeah, Manny, you were talking to me about this, too, about how it is this inspiring film, but also kind of uh, the the weapons used by our hero are maybe not the ones we want used anymore. Well, I think it's I think the filibuster in, in media is is always interesting because it's it's you know, in, in this movie and in two of my my absolutely favorite political shows, it's it's romanticized a lot. Um there's a great episode of of the West Wing. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. There's a an episode of the West Wing that I don't really love where they center on the filibuster. Uh Senator Stackhouse is giving a filibuster right before uh everyone is supposed to leave for a long weekend. Um, and in some very odd choices by Aaron Sorkin, every member of senior staff starts writing a letter home to their family that somehow also is able to, each letter is able to lead into one another. It's very strange. Um, but there is this romantic notion about the filibuster and what the senator in that case is doing. And then you've got an episode of Parks and Recreation where Leslie Nope is on you know, roller rollerblades trying to make sure that the citizens of old Eagleton get to vote. And there's a romantic notion tied to the idea of, you know, one person getting up and standing and talking about, you know, and, and talking until they can't talk anymore um, to, to, to stop some sort of legislation that they don't think is right, that they think is wrong. Um, but you're right, we have seen it weaponized. And it's, it's interesting because in a pop culture setting, I completely buy into that romantic aspect of the filibuster, but I, I think generally, generationally, I consider my familiarity with the filibuster Ted Cruz reading Green Eggs and Ham um, on the Senate floor, which I'm always going to love because he was talking about the Affordable Care Act and was reading a book about not liking something before he tried it. And I just, <laughs> you got to chef's kiss that kind of poetry. <laughs> Are you saying um, Ted Cruz didn't understand the point he was making? <laughs> what you were saying about the filibuster being weaponized in our lifetime is it's kind of like the reason the filibuster shows up so much in political media, uh, you know, in fiction about politics is you're right. It's a great thing for us to have our hero as the one lone person against the machine uh, in the same way that, well, let's face it, like none of us here. I'm, I'm assuming, and most of us do not want every single person to have access to a cadre of firearms. We don't want people to have automatic weapons. However, 
I think most of us here want John Wick to have access to every weapon he can. There's just a difference, <laughs> well, you it know? Is, it, it, it is almost similar to, like, pro- you know, you're probably watching Dirty Harry in 72 and being like, yeah, crime's rampant. There's not, the cops seemingly can't do anything, and they're letting people go for, you know, quote-unquote bullshit reasons. Yeah, you know, it's the Constitution, and but people are getting frustrated, and then to just see him just execute a wantonly just brazen serial killer who's like trying to murder children by the busload literally and everyone yeah fuck yeah but you watch that now and you go oh i don't know i mean yeah this is a movie but there's fucking cops that think that's the way they should be policing yeah it's it's and it's funny amanda you mentioned parks and recreation i want to stay on that because when you say when somebody says parks and recreation filibuster you mentioned you think of Amy Poehler's character, Leslie Nope on the roller skates. To me, when someone mentions Parks and Rec filibuster, I jump to uh, the Pat Oswalt filibuster from Parks and Rec. Ted Party Day! Yeah, which is, which is this perfect, you know, even though that show had an episode that kind of glamorized the filibuster, it also had an episode that pointed out how absolutely stupid it was. Absolutely. Because Pat Oswalt's character is able to show up and because, you know, he's a belligerent asshole, uh, <laughs> decides to filibuster by describing, his, and a fully improvised, to Pat Nozzle's credit, describing his plans for how you can integrate Star Wars into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> and in that moment, it makes the filibuster look so silly. And it is this kind of reminder of the thing with a democracy, it offers, or should, even when it's working at its best, it offers the same tools to everybody. You know, the ideal is offering everybody the same tools to advance some kind of change. And the problem we run into with that is, of course, that means people with bad intentions can also use those. And that's kind of what we run into with this film to a degree. Uh, You know, and kind of the central thing of this is that, you know, there are people who are just pulling a graft and there are people who are abusing the system and the public is so used to the system being abused that they really don't know who to trust. Absolutely. Um, I no, I I agree with that one hundred percent. The Patton Oswald uh, filibuster is also yeah a fantastic Parks and Recreation moment. Um, and really, that I think another thing that it that that really specifically shows is just uh, democracies evolve. Uh, the the needs of a democracy evolves, and I think what she actually says uh, when she's lamenting the fact that Patton Oswald can show up at a, a a, a council meeting and deliver a citizen filibuster is that maybe it made sense when they were meet when they were 12 people meeting in a barn but it's absolutely ridiculous that he could come in and use an, an antiquated uh an antiquated tool uh to slow down uh progress in in the city of Pawnee and I think that that probably does align more with how we feel about the filibuster today well it's funny too because the movie even makes it seem like oh this is a big gamble for him that at even like it's become just sort of a whatever tool now we expect people to just use it but at the time it felt like oh shit he's about to do a filibuster holy shit get get to the phones we gotta we gotta send this to the papers and it might not work it might be politically disadvantageous to him it might you know this is like a big move and uh you know it 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 does get to that that times change that this was kind of a nuclear option for a senator at the time not something you do just because 
the men pulling your strings said, uh, we don't want Medicare for all. So, uh, kill, some, kill, kill a weekend, read, read some books. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, cause it's, it, this film kind of feels like, you know, we invoked Sorkin. It's kind of impossible for us not to, we're all around the same age. The West Wing was just, if you are, if you are a millennial and you are politically inclined, the West Wing is at least partly the reason, you know, we all grew up with it. It all gave us. <laughs> well, well, shit, that art, that freaking thing that Sorkin got clowned on for last weekend was him basically writing the ending. If Capra made a movie about this year we're living in. I mean, oh, yes, he, he, yes. For those who forget, because uh, this will be months now, uh, somebody asked Aaron Sorkin, because he's promoting, I think, the trial of Chicago 7, and they asked him, how would you write the ending? And he said, well, I feel like we'd reach a point where the Republicans would say enough is enough, and they would push Trump out of office. That's how I would write the ending. Of course. And then everybody on Twitter got... But then everybody on Twitter was like, that's not something that's realistic. And they're like, no, they asked a fiction writer how he would fictionally resolve a fictional scenario like he just wrote the capra ending he's not yeah. writing the fucking gritty version where we go to war and the military's fighting the police because everything's just mayhem in the streets it's well no aaron sorkin have you have you watched anything this guy's done as <laughs> smug and v- verbose as he can be he's just doing capra shit yeah it's if there's two things we know are hallmarks of Aaron Sorkin's work, it's that he is ultimately optimistic about uh, the American people and still really mad that Kristen Chenoweth broke up with him. Those are the two staples of his work. Also and, that uh, he's a great <laughs> sketch comedy writer. Great sketch oh. comedy writer. <laughs> Amanda, I'm so sorry. We have so much Studio 60 talk on here. No, We're the only people totally talking fine. about it still. Uh, I have you ever seen Studio 60 by I've the way seen, I'll just ask. I've seen some of it I haven't watched all of it I think that I was watching it on a streaming service and I was watching it really slowly it wasn't the kind of thing I was exciting excited to binge I watched like maybe a couple of episodes and then it was pulled from whatever service I was watching it on and I like was like all right I guess I'm not going to go after this again this, um, breaking news someone wasn't excited to watch Studio 60 <laughs> Um, <laughs> Amanda Rush, the only one. <laughs> um. Oh yeah, you know, I Aaron Sorkin. I do. I have such a fond attachment to The West Wing, um, and and you know, a couple of different shows that he and and things that he's done. Um, but yeah, it's it's unrealistic to to ask him how he think how he would write the ending for what's going on now. I don't think that even the most adept political scholar could write an ending for whatever is going to happen between this moment and when it when we drop the episode. Uh, you know, after the election, it's that's just unrealistic. Of course, it's going to be rainbows and you know Sam Seaborn having the answer for absolutely everything, and I'm. I'm a Will Bailey fan, guys. I'm not a Sam Seaborn fan, so. <laughs> but that's just that's 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 what it is, and I think that that's. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's a reason why, in in my isolation during coronavirus, I have I think watched every episode of Parks and Rec and The West Wing, you know, multiple times each. Uh, there's something comforting about that optimistic, romanticized vision uh, that I am, you know, a lot of us are losing faith in, for better or for worse. Uh, based on our our actual reality, 
I think there's a lot of reasons why this movie has lasted as long as it's had. It's influenced so many things. I mean, not even just Sorkin, just like anything political. Um, it feels for as much as there's a lot of stuff that's stuck in 1939, surprisingly nothing problematic, thankfully, but um, just the way it's very much like we feel this way now. Oh yeah, these senators are just, it's a job. They really aren't doing anything to like, for the people, there's bosses. Even though it's painting it as like everyone else isn't like pain, there's still that sense of just like, oh, well, look at this rube. He thinks he could do something important. And that's, you know, not much has changed, especially, I mean, the way people feel about their elected officials of just, oh, they don't, they don't care about us. It's just a job to them. And it, it, it's very, it was very much a shock having watched it after so long to just have such a, without being nihilistic or like edgelordy, very cynical view of like the political machine, even for 1939, which I guess makes sense. It's what a few years, maybe not even like we're still fresh in the great depression or coming off the depression at this point of just, Oh yeah, the government sucks. They've destroyed us. They ruined our lives. And I think that there's, there's certain things to it. I mean, I, I, in the commentary on the DVD, Frank Capra Jr. mentions that the vice president at the time disliked the film because he felt it was unrealistic and people shouldn't see it because, well, uh, a senator wouldn't be allowed to take a prompt from a woman in the audience for his, uh, <laughs> for his filibuster, things like that. But it played like gangbusters with crowds. Um, I tried to figure out who the vice president was at the time, and I believe the vice president at the time who would have had objections to it was Vice President John Garner. Now, who knows the best quote that John Garner ever gave? Anybody have that poll? Uh, no. Tom, you're going to love this. John Garner hated being vice president because he felt it was he had nothing to do and it was a useless position. And he is famously quoted as saying, the job of the vice president isn't worth a bucket of warm piss. And I just wanted to pull that in for you, Tom, because I know you'll appreciate that, uh, that fine statement. So I, uh, I assume that's why he wasn't vice president when the FDR croaked. He, he literally got swapped out like two years later. Uh, well, yes. you, you know who uh, Payne is based off of? Harry Truman. Really? Hmm. Yeah. Did not realize that. Oh. <laughs> so uh, Capra, again, had a pretty good sense. I don't think he uh, expected Harry S. Truman to, uh, you know, commit two war crimes in Japan, but uh, definitely didn't have great feelings about the man. <laughs> I, I think that there's something to, I mean, we have to talk about, uh, you know, talking about the optimism. Um, when we had a friend of ours, uh, a journalist, uh, Vice Victus was on the show, Alec Gillis, uh, when we were talking about best years of our lives, and he mentioned how when he, as a, as a black man and a black veteran watching older films, he's always looking for um, the, the inclusion, where, where black characters show up in these films and how rarely they do and what they're doing. And I did find something just thinking about it and especially in the year that gave us the problematic gone with the wind and babes in arms that features a grotesque use of blackface by mickey rooney and judy garland to have frank capra include a moment that when jefferson smith is looking at the lincoln memorial a black man walks up and takes off his hat and is just shot with dignity and decency like any other american remembering the other films from that year made that more moving to me in that moment well also, you know? for me, just that 
when he they got all the kids trying to make the newspapers to get the info out, he focuses a lot of time on the young black kid that's uh, working in that newspaper thing. I'm it's, I mean, yeah, it's not the greatest like, I don't know, it's not the greatest reputation in the world, but he is just also like, yeah, there's this little black kid and he's part of the group and nobody's really making a thing about it and he's just you know he's he's helping the cause he's doing the right thing and there's no minstrel show there's no you know i don't know he's not playing any stereotypes or whatever you know between that and the the moment you mentioned it's uh you know uh, doing what he can in 1939 to show that maybe america is not just the uh cow pokes in the middle of the country and there's something to it visually, too. I mean, you know, obviously the use of the Lincoln Memorial and, and what I really appreciated on this rewatch is the use of shadow and just the way that Capra composes a black and white shot. I mean, one of the most vocal opponents of colorization of black and white films was Jimmy Stewart. And especially watching something like this, you see why, because it's so perfectly shot. And I wanted to ask, you know, Amanda, I've only been to, to D.C. a handful of times. Tom, I don't know if you've if been to D.C. at all. I have not. But Amanda, this is this is your your new. I mean, you know, Virginia Jason, but like, you know, this is your uh, new new ground. home in a sense. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> how how did it feel seeing uh, it through through Frank Capra's lens? Well, I it, it's so interesting because I think watching this movie, uh, watching that moment where where he goes missing and he's looking at all of these different monuments um, and sightseeing and is just kind of captivated um, by the history of Washington, D.C. and the, the weight of it uh, as our nation's capital. Um, I When I came down here to work, I didn't get a chance to sightsee a lot. I came down and I started working and we were gearing up for the midterm elections for 2018. But every day I would take the metro in from Arlington, Virginia to Washington, D.C., and we would go over the Potomac and I would get this great view of the Washington Monument. And I, you know, even to this day, when I'm when I'm driving back and forth or I'm, I'm making a commute into D.C., there is something really enormous to that feeling uh, of, of the history of this city. Um, and it, I I completely related to that moment of him just taking in all of the wonders of, and the history of DC. And when I finally did get the chance to go around and sightsee, uh, it it really filled me with a sense of of purpose and and uh, and promise. And you know, as many problems as you'll have with a lot of the folks that are memorialized in this city. Um, it, there's still just the incredible amount of history uh, that's here. And I, I remember that feeling. Uh, and it was so interesting for me watching it because there's that and it's juxtaposed against the character of Saunders, who's just sick of everything. She's, she's sick of being working at the Senate. She's sick of, you know, dealing with, with folks uh, like Payne. Uh, she's just tired. She wants out. She wants enough money to buy a new suit for the new season. And she's done. Um, and I, I've been in both of those spots and I'm, I'm far enough removed now where I'm kind of in the middle. So watching that scene, watching those scenes of the two of them together, especially, uh, before they make that initial bond, writing a bill together was, was really fun for me because I, I related so much to both, both characters in, in my recent memory. I think there's something too, uh, you know, that, that'll note about, uh, I, I often think about, 
Stewart's performance and how it's easy to only think about the filibuster scene or the wide-eyed optimism and maybe write off Stewart's performance, but there's a moment in there that I think that any of us who have kind of done this work even for a little bit, and you've certainly done it a lot more than I have, um, have felt, which is when Taylor tells Smith that pain is corrupt, uh, Stuart snarls out the words, you're a liar. There is such a sense of, it is, it is, his tone is truly on par with, uh, with Luke Skywalker after he's told, I'm your father. Like that real denial of that's not true, you know, you're a liar. And then the beauty of Capra doing this two shot um, when Stuart confronts Claude Rains and Rains is doing his monologue trying to explain like, you don't get it. This isn't how this works here. You've got to do what you got to do. The fact that he doesn't do close-ups, he doesn't cut around it. He just has the two of them standing in profile and you get to watch all of Stuart's faith and optimism in this system and in the people around him crumble. Now, I know, <clears throat> you know, even just from talking to you and, and following you on Twitter, there's, there's in, in the work that you do, there's days that make it all feel worth it. And there's, of course, days that are extraordinarily disheartening. Uh, and I, you know, I'd imagine akin to what Smith, the journey Smith takes in this. And I, I wanted to ask about that. What, what you felt you know, what you felt in that moment of Smith kind of having to accept that maybe some people or things he had faith in weren't the right things I have faith in. And also how you, if you, if you want to talk about that, how you still find reasons to, to keep at it in those downer moments. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there have been, um, a lot of occasions in my career in in politics and in advocacy where you know I was down and I just wanted to stay down I think that maybe the the biggest one that I can think of in my recollection is election night of 2016 um I didn't know if I was going to get up off the floor uh and when I did I went into it with kind of a, a chip on my shoulder after that which you know promoted prompted me to apply for more campaign jobs and, and move down to the DC area to continue working in politics. But and there were there were times along that journey where I just felt absolutely drained. I think the the team that I was working on, we were working hundred hour weeks. It was it was the midterms. Um and I was just I was just tired and drained despite all of the support that my team was giving me. Um, and for for me, that was actually when I made the decision to take a break from politics and move towards towards advocacy. Um, and there are days that are hard uh, hard in advocacy too. I think that the thing that keeps me keeps me getting up and moving is I you know right now I work for a patient based advocacy group. Um, and as hard it is as it is to hear people about people struggling, the one story of someone doing something really great and accomplishing what they need and, and knowing that I've helped them is huge, um, which is, you know, probably my sort and level of optimism. Um, and then I, also my friends who are still in the fight, electing Democrats up and down the ballot across the country. I, uh, you know, a lot of people probably aren't familiar with the way that sort of a, a democratic campaign or, or fundraising cycles work, but uh, 
you know, you just get six emails a day asking you to donate $10 to Joe Biden. And um, I have a lot of friends who work on that email team. Uh, and they had their big end of quarter fundraising deadline uh, just last night at midnight. And that was tied in with the debate. And they're exhausted. They're tired. And I admire them so much because I needed to take a I need to take a break on that. And I'd like to think that I'm still doing good and meaningful work. But it's uh, it is, I think, every day you have to find something that grounds yourself and and reminds you why you're doing the work that you're doing. And I truly, sincerely, as somebody who knows you, I res truly respect the hell out of you for it. And, of, you know, you obviously are still doing good. I mean, the there there's almost no bad response to the kind of blow that one would take after that 2016 loss. The only bad response is to go, I can't do this again, walk away from it. Uh, I don't know, manage a video store in a movie theater, then wind up unemployed and start hosting a movie top podcast with Tom and Kyle. That's the only bad route you could have taken after that. Otherwise, you know, you're made in the shade. <laughs> <laughs> I could work for I could work for like a big corporate company, too. I could have really sold out, but uh, I'm not quite ready to go there yet. Well, I don't have a job, so I'm ready to. If any big corporations are listening, I'll I'll sell out. I have nothing left. Because oh, yeah, uh, we've I'll got all the big corporations listening to us. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> um, uh... <laughs> the head of Monsanto is a regular subscriber. So might... AT&T loves me. <laughs> I might get really sick of it. And just like, just like Saunders in this movie, just want a new suit for the fall boys i might want to just sell out and get myself an, a new outfit but for right now uh it is just trying to figure out uh you know what keeps me going and a lot of that is friends a, lo a lot of it is, is friends and and folks that come to me uh every day to share their stories uh i i fight for i fight for them um and i i but i've been where he is in that scene where you just don't have you just don't have the faith and you don't know how you're going to keep going and you just want to go to the Lincoln Memorial and cry. Um, I have not cried there. I have cried in the middle of the Air and Space Museum. Just putting that out So there. if people are in the Air and Space Museum, you know, once things open up again, keep an eye out for you. You might be, uh, yeah, I'm you either, might seem really moved by a lunar lander. I'm really, I'm either really excited to be there and making some like annoying comments like, where's the time travel wing just trying to be a troll? Or I'm like very emotional, I'm like very emotional when I'm at the Air and Space Museum eating my freeze dried astronaut ice cream. I, I have to say our listeners, you know, are just getting to know you and, and Tom and Kyle are meeting you for the first time. But <laughs> I, I have to I'm say sorry. trolling, trolling the Air and Space Museum is the most on brand thing for you. I think <laughs> that is just. <laughs> uh, um, where want... is the time travel wing? It's very important. <laughs> I, I want to talk about a couple things because you mentioned friends and really I think when people think of Mr. Smith goes to Washington they picture him alone on the Senate floor and he's the beautiful thing is he's not alone and I don't think this movie is at its heart about one man standing up to the machine because he has Saunders he has Thomas Mitchell who Kyle if we have like a Thomas Mitchell bell for any time he comes up <laughs> we'll ring it um is Thomas Mitchell uh, and and the kids. I mean, in nine in now, it's very weird to have like a boys club hanging out. Much more common in '30s films. But there is something about the fact that it is like he's you know he's a friend of the kids. The, the young people love him, and the young people are pushing for a change because they still have a sense of optimism that the older people have gotten jaded about. It's not about 
I think Jefferson Smith being the lone man so much as it's what Jefferson Smith can inspire in people. He inspires these kids to go out and print these papers and, and he inspires Thomas Mitchell to go from being a guy who's willing to basically mock him and go, well, what is the truth? What's the truth this week? He's able to change these other people. And in the end, it's their victory as much as his. And you know what I, I love so much? It's, it's such a great little thing. I love that the vice president is, just loves what Mr. Smith, what Jefferson Smith is doing, that he's just smiling and laughing and just like, yeah, this guy, this guy's got some balls. And uh, I just love that there's somebody in the, in the chamber that's just like loving what's going on. And he's like, yeah, well, uh, and then they're all meeting in the back and it's like, yeah, uh, I, I, I think this kid's right. I, I, I think he's telling the truth. And, uh, you know, I just love that little, little detail that even, even somebody still in there could still have that sense of, uh, decency and decorum and just being able to sniff out the bullshit and see what's right or wrong. And it's not just somebody. It's, you know, we talk about this sometimes on the show, um, this idea of there are certain things with these older films that we lose in translation, but were obvious for viewers at the time. Uh, the man in that scene, uh, in Mr. Smith, the, the president of the Senate, yeah. um, Tom Smith, the vice president, but it's the president of the Senate, is played by Harry Carey. Harry Carey was one of the earliest uh, silent movie stars and the original... Um, cowboy hero. So, you know, throughout cinema history, we've had these men who were like the quintessential cowboy hero. Like now, it's the lexicon still kind of goes to John Wayne, who is a much more problematic individual. But the, the idea of the cowboy hero has been other people from Gene Autry, Roy Rogers. Harry Carey is essentially, you know, before there was a Superman. He was kind of our Superman. He was one of the quintessential American heroes. So to then cast him as kind of the elder in the Senate, mm -hmm. this face of, you know, this face of the American way, looking at Jefferson Smith and having to hide his smile, I think is such a great little touch in that moment. Uh, you know who they originally wanted to play Jefferson Smith? Um, I don't. Was it? Would it have been Gary Cooper? Because he just worked with him on Mr. Deeds. He wanted it to be Gary Cooper because he wanted this to be Mr. Deeds goes to Washington. Wow. Gary Cooper was uh, too busy working on something else, and he went with Jimmy Stewart. And uh, Gene Arthur really did not like Jimmy Stewart because she would have preferred to have worked with Gary Cooper. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess it was a fruitful relationship for Jimmy. And um, also just uh, another side. Uh, there was this movie series in the 70s that was unexplicably big called Billy Jack. Oh, Billy Jack, of course. And there was one Billy Jack goes to Washington mm -hmm. and he offered Jimmy Stewart the pain role. And Jimmy Stewart was just like, no. <laughs> Which I love. I love the fact that Jimmy Stewart, when they went, hey, do you want to voice a cowboy dog in the sequel to this immigrant mouse movie? He said, yes. But Billy Jack goes to Washington's a bridge too far. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like, um, why would, no, who are you? Well, it's funny you mentioned things from Mr. Smith. Let's touch on this a little bit. At one point in 1949, Columbia planned, but never actually produced a sequel to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington called Mr. Smith Starts a Riot, which sounds amazing. Oh, hell yeah. Mr. Um, Smith is a cab. Uh, they also considered doing a gender-reversed remake in 1952, and here's the crazy thing, with Jane Wyman playing the lead role. Now, of course, Jane Wyman 
was at the time married to and then would divorce future President Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Surprised they haven't um, made a gender swapped version of it today with Melissa McCarthy riffing for two hours and we got the, <laughs> oh my best, God. the best of riffs edited down to a feature length movie that literally everyone hates. Uh, but that's I... not all. Go ahead. I'm sorry, you were saying about it? No, I just, I, I don't want them to, to remake or sequel this. I mean, Gene Arthur. Oh, well, Mike has some news for you. Well, there, was, there wasn't a remake, but there was, here's crazy, there was a TV series, a Mr. Smith Goes to Washington TV series. I read about That this. ran on ABC, yeah, from 1962 to 1963. Now, what I love is playing the role of Jefferson Smith is Fess Parker. Fess Parker is fascinating because Fess Parker... Uh, obviously is best known for playing Davy Crockett in the, in the Disney Davy Crockett films and was such an icon for it. Uh, and like people wanted him in everything. They made mm-hmm. him uh, a Daniel Boone and then Mr. Smith. Now, I was only able to find one episode of the Mr. Smith Goes to Washington TV series. And however bad you think it is, it's so much radically worse. Uh, <laughs> it's a nightmare. Almost it's... like Frank Capra was better than television directors <laughs> in 1962. There's a lot of musical numbers. The craziest thing is the video quality is so grainy that the joke at the end of the episode was that like a, a Jackie Kennedy impersonator showed up. And I, because it was such bad quality, just went, wait, is Jackie Kennedy there? Did they just get her for this? There's musical numbers. Can you send this so, to me? I, I will 100% send it to you. Thank you. Um, let's talk about the Oscars real quick. Um, this is one of my favorite Oscar years. Uh, and as I mentioned, Amanda, we've already talked about this once. This was a murderer's row year. It, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was nominated, but lost uh, Best Picture. It was nominated alongside Dark Victory, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Love Affair, Ninochka, Of Mice and Men, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, Wuthering Heights, and The Winner, Gone with the Wind. It was also nominated for Best Director, but lost to Victor Fleming for Gone with the Wind. Jimmy Stewart was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Robert Donat for Goodbye, Mr. Chips. It was nominated twice for Best Supporting Actor. Claude Rains and Harry Carey were both nominated for Best Supporting Actor. The irony is they both lost to Thomas Mitchell for the movie Stagecoach, because Thomas Mitchell was in Stagecoach, Gone with the Wind, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington that year. The year of Thomas Mitchell. Every year is the year of Thomas Mitchell. We love him. <laughs> uh, it was nominated for Best Screenplay, but lost to Gone with the Wind. Best Scoring, but lost to Stagecoach. Best Sound Recording, but lost to When Tomorrow Comes. Best Art Direction, lost to Gone with the Wind. Best Film Editing, lost to Gone with the Wind. But it did win the Academy Award for a category we no longer have, which is Best Story. So even in that stacked year where Gone with the Wind ran the table, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington did at least walk away with a little bit of gold. And obviously, it's still indoors to this day. It was inducted into the National Film Registry in the inaugural year. And my favorite thing to think about is uh, Jimmy Stewart uh, did actually live to see that, which is a nice little feeling. I do love that. I wish we had a best story category now. Well, it was this weird thing where at the time it was best story and then best uh, screenplay, which basically meant best adapted screenplay. So now they split it into original screenplay and adapted, and the rules for it are absolute chaos and nonsense. <laughs> but we can't get into that too much now. Amanda, did you have any, because uh, I know you have to get going soon, did you have any uh, other thoughts you wanted to share specifically on, on Mr. Smith? I, I think it's interesting because I know that when Tom and I were talking, Tom first came on and was talking about this, that it was, he was saying that it was frustrating um, for him to watch it based on our current political climate, which I 
I, I find interesting because for me, it was actually uh, very refreshing. Um, I think that I, I, I messaged you the first night that I, I watched it the first time and just thanked you for the opportunity to put this on. Um, I think that there's, like I said, I don't think that at this heart, this is a, a movie about politics. I think that this is a movie about the power of civic engagement and optimism and what one person, you know, who believes in what they're doing is right can do. Um, and like I said, I've had a lot of moments where I haven't been sure that I want to get up off the floor. And I mean, the fact that a movie from from the 30s could could impact me in that way, I think was really impactful. And I've actually texted every single one of my friends saying when, hey, after Election Day, you should put on this movie no matter what happens um, and just, you know, see what it does to your spirits. Because I think I think that it there are some really as unrealistic as it is uh in in some respects and as outdated as some of the things in it are as we've talked about it's uh it's still an incredible movie there was one really big moment though that really uh affected my ability to suspend my disbelief and it was when um it was when Payne admitted that he was wrong I can't imagine a a white male U.S. senator admitting that they're wrong. And it just pulled me out of the movie completely. I had to pause it, take a walk, turn it back on. I just, could you imagine Mitch McConnell or Ted Cruz being like, all right, I was wrong. You should just kick me right out of the Senate. Well, no, I could not dealing with a Supreme Court nomination process that every single Republican is cravenly, hypocritically doing the opposite of what they did four years ago because they said, well, it's different now. And we go, why? And they go, because we want to win. And you go, oh, that's right. Uh, the political process will never be good. Uh, Mrs. Smith Goes to Washington is an actual uh, <laughs> nightmare to watch because you go, oh, no good person could ever be in <laughs> politics uh, because it's just a cesspool. And uh, <laughs> God damn it, it really made me wish Jimmy Stewart would just pop out of his grave, skeleton, oh, just a skeleton, and just cold cock some senators and just, <laughs> and just take them out back and give them the business. Now, that's that's a question. You know, there's certain things, obviously, you can't say uh, when it comes to uh, political figures. You know, you can't wish anything, any actual harm to them without getting, uh, you know, uh, on the list. Are we allowed to say uh, we hope the skeleton of Academy Award winning actor rises up and, and cold cocks someone? Or, or do we end I up mean, on a watch list for if, that? I don't know. If the skeleton of Jimmy Stewart rose up and cold cocked me, I would be pretty excited about it, guys. Like, that's a that's a story. That's <laughs> oh, like I'm, a... I'm... I'm, crush me, Jimmy! Please crush me. What if he's and he's still <laughs> reading? He's still reading his memoirs he used to read on Dick Cavett. That are just like, and that's when Alfred told me we were making rear window boom. Like it's just just how it goes. Um, just 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 quickly before we go, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't mention that. Um, I think Claude Rains is actually gives the best performance in the movie. I think I just love that character because, as she said. He has the moment where he admits he's wrong, and I just feel like it's so perfectly woven throughout the movie, and he plays it so well of the guy whose soul is starting to come back to life, and he's starting to feel guilty, and uh, I just thought, out of everyone in this powerhouse movie, I thought Claude Rains kind of, in my esteem, comes out heads and shoulders uh, at the top of the game. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't bring that up before we, we left. Uh, Amanda, do you have anything uh, before you go that, that you want to plug, anything you want to throw out? The, the, the floor is yours. Yeah, sure. I mentioned this earlier. I th- I completely agree with Tom. I think that that performance is really incredible, even if it did uh, pull on my suspension of disbelief. 
Um, one thing that we've we frequently talked about in this episode is just sort of the difference between the way that things were portrayed uh, in the 1930s versus how we'll portray them now. Um, and I think that there's a lot that it, it that still is, you know, it, it's not like some other movies where you'll watch it and you'll go, oh, that doesn't fly right there. Uh, but there is that moment right before uh, Senator Payne's uh, revelation uh, where he attempts to commit suicide. Um, I'm a big advocate for mental health, uh, and I want to plug the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, uh, which is 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, and if you're suffering from a mental health crisis, you're not alone. Uh, The way that we've depicted it in films, honestly, I could probably do an entire other episode about the way that mental health is depicted in films over the years, Um, but I would be remiss if I didn't plug that in a movie that that used it as a plot device. Hey, if you want to watch a really great old movie about how badly mental health is being portrayed, watch the movie Split from 2016. I'm sorry for bringing it down with that. With that no, with that I, just, I just think it's, I think it's real. No, it's an important plug. It also makes it real hard for you to then plug your Twitter afterward. It just feels real shallow. Oh, point. yeah, yeah. It, it definitely <laughs> is. Um, <laughs> it'll be in the it'll be in the show notes. Don't worry. Um, okay, if you want it to great. be, if you don't, that's also fine. Um, but yeah, if you have anything else you want to plug, by all means. Really, I think that that's it. I um follow me on Twitter. Uh, they'll drop my my handle in the show notes. Um, I did just recently launch a, a small business on on Etsy, uh, where I am knitting during the pandemic and selling what I create, and then every purchase. Um, I donate a pair of socks to a, that I knit to a Washington, D.C. area homeless shelter, um, and I can send you guys the information if you want to include that plug, or you can just edit this out. I don't. It's, I easy. need you to oh, knit me a sweater with Jimmy Stewart's <laughs> desiccated corpse crawling out of a grave saying, it's go time. Um, I'm currently trying to knit myself a uh, fisherman's sweater so that I can Photoshop myself next to uh, Chris Evans from the movie Knives Out and send it as my Christmas card. Uh, It has already made me cry four times and is going to take me at least two months. So that's going to take me a little while, Tom, but I'll add it to my list. Well, you should actually Photoshop yourself standing next to uh, Robert Shaw in the uh, movie Jaws because that's also another great uh, sweater movie. Put them all together. It's a trio on the boat. I know you have to go, but thank you so much for joining us. I'm I'm so glad uh, you did this, and it was great uh, actually hearing your voice again, which we have not done in years. So yeah, let's definitely talk soon. Um, and I'm hoping that when this episode airs, we are on that something good has happened. But uh, <laughs> you know, give me a give me a give me a call if you if you, if we need to if we need to add like a five minute addendum to this episode. All right. So Trump won the election. <laughs> Currency is bottle caps. And we're and doors are ten feet tall now. <laughs> skeletons are rising. They're literally rising. Who knew? James um, Stewart's leading them. Amanda, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you so much for coming by. Thank you so much, guys. It's been so fun. Have me back anytime. I'd love to talk to you guys again. I yield the floor to the two of you to select. What movies you would want to add to the registry, uh, as always, uh, it needs to follow the rules. It needs to be at least 10 years old, and it needs to be an American film. My pick 
Uh, I was between a couple things. I, I have to be honest, before I did my rewatch of Mr. Smith, uh, I was going to pick a different film. I had this thought of, well, since this is such an optimistic film about Washington and about politics, I should pick a film that reflects a pessimistic view of politics. Maybe, uh, maybe Alexander Payne's election or something like that. In rewatching it, and especially our conversation with uh, Amanda coming on and talking about uh, being on the campaign trail and, and what that feels like and the ups and downs of it, really helped me settle on what I think uh, should be in the registry based on this film and what this film makes me think of. And the thing about it is, the film is, uh, you know, we, we talked about how it's uh, a narrative and it's not realistic. The film that I would put in the registry that I truly think should be in the registry is a remarkable film that you would watch and believe uh, you would. There's no way you would believe it had happened if it were not a documentary. It's a film that chronicles a mayoral campaign with a, a young inspirational idealist who we now all know, but at the time was uh, an unknown. It was Cory Booker's 2002 campaign against Sharp James for mayor of Newark documentary is called Street Fight. 2005 documentary by Marshall Curry. It was nominated for Best Documentary Feature. It is an absolutely remarkable film that touches on so many of the issues, the extraneous issues that go into political campaigns, issues of race and ethnicity and sexuality, uh, conversations about, you know, the one person uh, living in luxury and the other person living in, you know, the, the Brick Towers housing building. And then some people accusing him of being in the Brick Towers for, for show. It's such a remarkable film. Um, and the beauty of it is as much as we are all sick of films shot in that very shaky cam verite style, this one really makes you feel like you're in the moment. There are a lot of movies like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And like we talked about the West Wing as a TV show, movies that are optimistic and inspire you to, to fight. The beauty of Street Fight, I think, is that the, the actual mayoral race in 2002, Booker loses. And you're watching as the politicians in power are using the police as, and local businesses as thugs to, to shut down Booker and shut him out. And he ultimately loses. It's a dirty film. It's an unsettling film. It is a, it's hard not to be pessimistic toward local politics watching it, but the beauty of it is it is still inspiring because it tells you that the fight is worth fighting even if you lose. The fight is worth fighting no matter how dirty it gets. It's an exceptional piece of documentary filmmaking. I believe, if I remember correctly, uh, it lost to, I think, March of the Penguins. Uh, so that's, you know, that's what it lost to. But I truly believe that, uh, Street Fight, it's one of my favorite documentaries and I, I truly believe it deserves a place in the National Film Registry. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of choices with politics and all that stuff. You could go with the Mr. Smith angle or just politics in general. So the movie I picked was, I want, i I think there's a movie that works as a great flip side to Mr. Smith goes to Washington, not in the sense that, Oh, the government's bad and politics is bad and there's no hope, but in the sense of a man who goes into politics where you get the sense he tries to do good, 
he's trying, he's a smart guy, he's he's canny, but you see that he's just not built for this world. He's got thin skin, he's got like a Napoleon complex, he's paranoid, he thinks everyone's out to get him, and he just starts becoming more and more just of a jackbooted thug, and he, he starts slipping into paranoia and essentially makes the world the worst place. I think this movie might be my favorite of this filmmakers. If not f- my favorite, it's probably number two. Um, I think this is a great movie. It's underrated. It's, and it shows that this, po- this politician digs himself into a hole and uh, as f- fucked up as it turns the country, it shows the system kind of working and, this guy goes out in a not so great blaze of glory. He leaves in disgrace. Uh, I am going with Oliver Stone's Nixon. I think it is a masterpiece of humanizing a, a monster, quote unquote. It's all about um, empathy, not sympathy. Understanding him without ever waving away what he's done and what he's become. I think it's a great movie. It's one of his most patient movies. It's, um, I think it's brilliant. I think it's one of Anthony Hopkins' best roles. And I think it does work as a dark flip side where it's almost like if Mr. Smith went to Washington and became like Payne instead of keeping his dignity and his honor. Um, I think Nixon is uh, the way I would go here. And I do think it genuinely should be in the uh, National Film Registry because... Oliver Stone may be a clown now, but he went on a hell of a run, was one of our most important filmmakers, and I think he should have a good amount of representation in this registry. No, I agree. I love Nixon. It was a bold move when it came out, and I feel like any time I watch Nixon or even see snippets of Nixon, uh, it weirdly makes me want to try W again and be like, did he nail it again? Did we just not get it? No, he didn't. (laughs) No, he didn't. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Amanda Rush for joining us. You can follow her on social media at Ms. Amanda Rush. You can also follow our co-hosts on social media as well. You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at Raging Bull 1990. And you can find me at Theatricality with a K. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps a little show like ours. If you know some friends who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you have someone you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, tell us about it at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.